Good morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you take them out now and turn in them to the book of Titus. Our text today is Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. As you can see, we are nearing the end of this amazing letter. Five or six more months of preaching and we'll be through. <laughs> Did you catch that sun, sunrise this morning? Wasn't it glorious? That ought to remind us, shouldn't it, that God's mercies are new. New every morning. It's good to be here together as God's people. It's good to go to His Word and let it speak to our hearts. So Titus chapter 3 verse 8 says this. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's, let's pray one more time, asking the Lord to help us. Father, we come before you now so thankful for the trustworthy word. Trustworthy. We can rely on your word. We can trust it. In a world of such uncertainty, in a world of, with so many lies and falsehoods swirling about, so much so that it gets difficult to even see the truth, we have your truth. And it is trustworthy and we can rely on it. Lord, I pray this morning as we, as we come to your word that you would help us as a, as a body of Christ. You would help us to understand your word and grow because of it. Be strengthened in our resolve to hold fast to this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have heard this story before because I've, I've told it in a couple of different um, settings, but... Uh, so if you've heard this before, you'll, you'll just have to bear with me as I retell it this morning. Uh, in the college town where I used to serve before as a pastor of a very college church, I wrote and I posted to the church's website an open letter to, to the students and the, in, in the congregation who would be graduating and moving on. Everybody, this was uh, Shadron, Nebraska, and everybody leaves Shadron, it seems like. They, they graduate and they go on to grad school or med school or take up jobs in other cities. We said goodbye like that every year as most of the students would leave this small town when they graduated. But this, particularly, this particular year, we were saying goodbye to a lot more students than normal. It was just the way things were going, I suppose. I wanted to give them a parting shot as their pastor, encouraging them to find good Bible-believing and Bible-preaching churches in their towns, the new cities that they would go to. I was wanted to encourage them to cling to the hope of the gospel and to devote themselves to love and good works. But here's the thing. I knew that few people would read it if I just posted it to the church's website. I could see the stats, and I knew that not many students would check the church's blog and be able to read this, and I wanted it to gain some traction, so I did something a little cheeky. I titled the article, An Open Letter to Those Leaving the Church. 
and posted that title with links and articles all over social media, and quickly it gained a lot of traction, hundreds and hundreds of hits. If I had titled it something more plain like an open letter to graduating college students, it would not have gained that kind of traction. But an open letter to those leaving the church, that, that smacks of some big unfolding controversy or scandal or church division. And that is what drew people to check it out. I'm sure that lots of people hungry for the excitement of church conflict sighed with disappointment when they got there and realized that it was no, there's no conflict at all, just a cheeky clickbait pastor getting his message out. I might have smiled at that thought that my letter got out. Many college students would be able to read it and take encouragement from it, but I did not smile at the thought of what brought them there. That inner thing in our hearts that craves controversy and loves a good scandal. There is something in the heart of fallen man that loves it when we fight, that loves to fight. There is an impulse in our sinful hearts that is bored with peace and ready to go at it over anything. The human heart does not love peace. The human heart does not love peace. Paul knew that. Titus had learned that too. Much of the occasion of this letter is that reality. It's because of the reality, because of, because of the conflicts that, that they were facing on the island of Crete. There were people who were stirring up foolish controversies in the church. And part of the aim of this open letter, the book of Titus, was to instruct Titus and the church leaders to avoid such nonsense. And stay clinging tenaciously to the hope of the gospel. To insist on what is good and wholesome and profitable and excellent. And to avoid issues. And even in some cases to avoid people. Who would needlessly destroy peace among Christians. This morning, and I will set this up without any clickbait at all. We will look at the two sides of the coin of chapter 3 verses 8 through 11. We will see the things that Paul wants us to insist upon. And we will see the things he calls us to avoid. And my hope is that we will take it to heart. I find everything in this paragraph relevant for our day and relevant for our church. It's not that I've noticed something specific in this church. I haven't been pastor here long enough to notice something specific like that here. But I have been a pastor long enough to know how fragile unity can be among Christians. And how ready many are to take up arms and fight over things that do not matter. While ignoring precious truths. Precious truths that matter most. Therefore, I pray this morning that we will take both the warnings and the encouragement of Titus 3, 8 through 11 to heart. May God for his glory in us and in Sioux Falls and even among the nations, because this affects the nations, help us to insist on these things, things that are excellent and profitable and that lead to good works and help us to avoid foolish controversies, things that are unprofitable and worthless and that lead to division among the body of Christ. Look with me again at verse 8. I'll just read it again so that it's fresh. The saying is trustworthy. 
And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So let's first note three points of commendation about this saying and these sayings. And then we'll think about what these sayings themselves are, what these things are. The first commendation is that this saying is trustworthy. That's, that's a phrase Paul loves to use, and it means, obviously, that this is, truth, this is truth that you can trust. You can trust this saying. It is true. You can bank on the, righteous, the rightness of this saying. In a world with so many conflicting messages, many of which sound so compelling, and in a world, and even in, in, in the church, with people insisting on various things, this saying is one that you can trust. This is a trustworthy saying. Second, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Insisting on these things is good because it actually brings help to people who believe them. There is real and tangible profit in these things. When we, churches and church leaders and Christians, insist upon these things, we enjoy real benefit, real profit. Third, insisting upon these things leads to increased devotion to good works. In the people of God. Paul says, insist on these things that those who have believed in God may devote themselves to good works. That means that insisting on this saying and these things leads in the Christian to an increased commitment to do good things, to do good works. Good things like loving one another, helping one another. Good things like loving our neighbors. Good things like evangelism. Good things like preaching the gospel to the nations. I take that to mean that failing to insist on these things will lead to a decreased devotion to good works. Failing to do this, failing to emphasize these things will lead to less love. Less love for one another, less love for neighbor, less evangelism, less missions. We should keep that in mind. Insisting on these things leads to increased devotion to good works among the people of God, while not insisting on these things leads to less good works. So what is this saying that is trustworthy and excellent and profitable and that leads to increased devotion to good works? This saying must refer to verses 4 through 7. Likely, verses 4 through 7 was either an ancient confession in the church And maybe even a song that they would sing together in worship, something like that. It was a saying. No English translations do this, but in my Greek New Testament, the the NA28, for those of you who care about such things, verses 4 through 7 are formatted just like a saying or like like a poem that's out of meter apart from the rest of the chapter. I think this was an early confession in the church. That Christians, would, they would memorize this. They would recite this to one another. Maybe they would even sing it on a Sunday morning. And I think that's why Paul calls this a trustworthy saying. I preached on this passage last week, so I won't dwell long on it this morning. But we have to read this saying to get it in our context and in our minds so that we can understand our passage. So Titus 3, 4-7 through 7 says... When the goodness, I love this passage, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Doesn't that sound like a confession? It is our confession for sure. And it is this saying that Titus is to insist upon. Friends, it is the gospel. The loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us according to his own mercy. Apart from works. We have been washed in regeneration. New birth. Born again. And we have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. The the Spirit has been poured out on us richly through Jesus. We are justified by His grace. We are heirs according to eternal life. This saying is the, the saying and these things that are trustworthy, excellent, profitable, and that lead to good works. I think that's amazing. I am thankful that we know That the gospel is not merely good news for unbelievers. So that they might turn and trust in Jesus Christ. It is that, of course. It's it's good news to sinners. I hope that you are turning to Jesus by faith this morning. And I'd urge you to do just that. The gospel is good news for sinners. And it is also good news for saints. Those who have been redeemed by God's grace. And note that in this passage. He does not say, insist on these things so that people might believe in God. Instead, he says, insist on these things, Titus, so that those who have believed in God might devote themselves to good works. He is talking about the ongoing work of the gospel in the life of a Christian. The gospel is good news for saints. It is good news for brand new Christians And Christians who have been walking with Jesus for 50 years. It was good news for me on the day that I trusted in Jesus Christ. As a 16 year old who who knew literally nothing about the Bible. And it is good news for me today. Pushing 50. As a man who has read and studied the Bible for over 30 years. Don't think of the gospel as the simple things of the Christian life. Or merely the starting place. I mean, it is the starting place. But it is so much more. I don't remember where I heard or read this, but I'm sure I didn't think of it on my own. I think of precious little on my own. (laughs) But I, I have read or heard somewhere that the gospel is like an ocean. I grew up near the ocean, so this image really resonates with me, as I'm sure that it does For you. (laughs) I used to go to the ocean even as a tiny toddler. Like I grew up in Florida. We lived near near the near New Smyrna Beach and we'd go to the beach all the time. And even as a little toddler, I would go to the beach and I would wade in the shallows. The ocean's awesome for little kids. And I have swam where the water below me was miles deep. That's like the gospel. A child can understand it and enjoy the waves, wade out in it, take great pleasure in it, in their new understanding of the Savior who died and rose again for him or for her. And that child can go on to spend his entire life indeed and eternity exploring the depths and wonder of this gospel. 
And to the point of this passage, that exploration is good and excellent and profitable and leads to increased devotion to good works. A lot of people have asked me about my vision for the church. Somebody asked me just yesterday about my vision for this church, for, for this ministry or for that ministry. As most of you know, most of you probably know, I'm the new guy on the block. I've been the pastor for preaching and vision here since August. So if you're new to faith, take courage. I'm new as well. Maybe we can get together and compare notes sometime as the newbies. A lot of you have asked me, about what I will do to see growth or continued growth and fruitfulness in various ministries. And I've been thinking and praying a lot about such things and conversing with many of you about these things. I'd like to share with you one really big thing I am resolved to do to see continued and increased faithfulness among us. This is a major, major part, not joking, this is a major part of my vision for this church and for my vision for ministry here You might want to write this down. I am resolved to preach the gospel to you. Week in, week out. Good times, difficult times. Times of growth, times of recession. In season and out of season. I am resolved to preach the gospel to you, my fellow saints. And part of my resolve is founded in verse 8. I will insist upon these things so that we who have believed in God may be careful to devote ourselves to good works. This is where the fruitfulness of ministry will come. The gospel, we can be certain, will bear fruit among us. I think that's wonderful. And that's one side of our two-sided coin in this passage. We are called to insist upon these things. And as you can see in verses 9 through 11, the other side of this coin is what we are to avoid. We're to insist on something, we're to hold it with a clenched fist, and we're to avoid something. And what we are to avoid, what we are called to avoid, is foolish controversies. And those determined to stir up those controversies in the church. Now again, to go back to where we began, I believe that this impulse to divide and to argue and to fight is in our DNA, as it were. Our fallen and sinful nature, because of pride and because of envy, loves to exalt ourselves and to see others lower than ourselves. And we do that even in the church, sadly. Even as we teach things. And I want to note that right off because as I understand this passage, it is the gospel that changes that in us. It's the gospel that, that changes that impulse to, to want to exalt self. It is the gospel. We are transformed by the work of Jesus Christ, by his spirit poured out on us from people who love scandal and love to quarrel to people who love to love and love to encourage, love to edify and unify and selflessly promote others. And look after the needs of others. That's what the gospel does in us. Again, this is why Paul proposes insisting upon the good and excellent and profitable gospel as the remedy for foolish controversies. Paul does not say, and he does not mean that we should avoid all controversies. He is not urging Titus to refrain from engaging in controversial issues, things that people disagree upon. Paul himself engaged in controversy. You can go read the book of Galatians to see that and many other passages in his writings to see that Paul engaged in serious controversy 
in the church. Paul isn't telling us to avoid all controversies. He is telling us to avoid foolish controversies. Controversies that do not lead to profit, that do not lead to good works, but that are unprofitable and worthless. Controversies that do not lead to people growing deep in their walk with Jesus Christ and in their unity with one another, but instead lead to bitter division and a ceasing, a ceasing of the work of the gospel in a church. Less good works, less evangelism, less missions. I don't know if you have experienced serious church conflict. I have, sadly. And one of the marks of a church embroiled in conflict is that there is little to no concern about anyone outside of us. No concern for ministry in this world. Little concern for missions or evangelism. The issue of the day, small though it might be, is everything. Wouldn't it be prudent, therefore, for the enemy of God's people, for the enemy of the church, God's work in this world, to simply get his people fighting? Worthless controversies, I'm afraid, make up the bulk of what Christians have historically divided over. Not mainly good, useful controversies over things like justification by faith, or the infallibility and the authority of the Word of God, or the sanctity of human life, or the deity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, but useless and unprofitable controversies over things that do not matter that much. Paul names several, and these must have been simply the things that they were going on, the useless controversies that they were facing in that day, controversies of genealogies and quarrels about the law, specific. And I don't know what it's all about. We don't know whether it was about... People insisting on the observance of special days or what Christians can and cannot eat or things like that or the value of a, of a Jewish heritage. If you could trace your line back to true Jewish heritage, then maybe you were more tied to the covenant people or something like that. We don't know for certain what the controversies were about, but what we do know for certain is that no one, literally no one, was helped by these foolish controversies. Only harm, only disunity comes from them. And I, I could list a, f- a few present day specific controversies that I, th- I think fit this bill. I made a list as I was preparing, but I decided not to. And I made that decision because I think it would be more helpful for us to take from this a framework, a framework of this passage so that we might apply it in our church. That is, I don't just want to avoid some specific controversies and set your mind on those specific controversies. I'd rather for us to learn to discern which controversies are worthless and which ones we must avoid. There will be doubtless worthless conflicts coming at us soon, maybe even sooner than we might, than we might want or think. We live in a very polarized society. You know this. We live in a very highly polarized society, and we are entering another highly polarized election cycle. And we just went through a highly polarized season in the U.S. that was sparked by COVID. And there is the cancel culture that has seeped its way into the American church. There is a rallying among American Christians around certain celebrity pastors and Bible teachers and a canceling of others. And along with that, a drawing of red lines. And we have social media to platform all of this so that a pastor on the West Coast could disrupt the unity of churches in the East Coast. That's our day. That's our challenge that we face. The potential for disunity is everywhere. 
And we need a framework so that we can know when to engage and when not to. Perhaps this passage leads us to ask two questions. And I think those two questions serve as a great framework for when we decide to engage in a controversy. First, what bearing does that issue have on these things? The gospel, the truths of verses 4 through 7, if it has no bearing, then perhaps it is a controversy to avoid. We are called again to insist on these things. That's the first question. Second, will engaging in this controversy help people to love Jesus Christ and love one another and devote themselves to good works? You ask those two questions, I think you'll know when you should engage and when you shouldn't engage. There are controversies that fit the bill, and there are many, many that should be avoided. I will happily enter the fray to help people love Jesus Christ and love one another and devote themselves to good works. But if that is not where the fight leads, then that controversy is not worth my time or yours or ours. Perhaps it's a foolish one to be avoided. There is a framework for us here. And it's not only the controversies themselves that are to be avoided. We're not simply called to disengage from fruitless, divisive controversy. We are called to engage and perhaps disengage with divisive people, the ones who are stirring the controversy. Now note with me that Paul does not simply tell Titus to avoid these divisive people. There have been times just when I might have wished that that's what he said there, just avoid these divisive people because that might have been easier but Paul insists on a process, and redemption is right at the heart of that process. Look again at verse 10. After warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Do you see a process in that? You warn the divisive person once with the hope that they will see their error, repent of their sin, and return to Christ and the gospel, and strive for the unity of the church. That's your hope. That's why the warning comes. But if after the first warning he persists in his sin, you are to warn him again with the hope that he will see his error, repent of his sin, and return to Christ and the gospel and strive for the unity of the church. But then if he persists further in his sin, you are to have nothing more to do with him. He is set in his sin, as you can see in verse 11. This is a pattern of church discipline, and we see it in other places, Matthew 18, among others. And there are two aims in this process. One aim is the repentance and the restoration of the divisive person, and the other aim is to safeguard the unity and the sound doctrine in the church. Church discipline, is always, it always has an eye on those two things, the restoration of the offender and the safeguarding of the flock of God. And that's because unity is precious. And of course, I do not mean unity at the expense of truth. I think I've made that clear. I mean the unity that comes from a shared confession of the work of Jesus Christ. The authority of scriptures and the fruit of the spirit of God in us. A unity around the insistence on these things. Unity is a precious thing. And the gospel, friends, is the most unifying reality in the universe. I mean, look, look at this crowd. Look at who it brings together. Old, young, rich, poor, black, white. The gospel unifies. 
But unity, sadly, is a fragile thing. And there are those who care much more about their cause or their particular issue than they do about the unity of the body of Christ. So there are issues to avoid. There are issues to avoid. There are foolish controversies we are called to disengage from. There are even people following a a process, a redemptive process, that we might even have to avoid for their good and for the good of the church. But there is a truth. There is a truth, friends, we are called to cling to and to insist upon. The trustworthy saying, it is the hope of the gospel, the goodness and loving kindness of God that has appeared in Christ with saving and sustaining and transforming effect in all who believe. On this we must insist, and that insistence leads to increased devotion through good works and those who believe in God. Oh, friends, let us grip this gospel with a tight fist. And let us avoid unprofitable arguments that do not lead to joy in Christ forever. Let us not be a people who are drawn to scandal and conflict. Gospels change that in us. It's not who we were. That's not who we are anymore. It's who we were. It's not who we are anymore. Now we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and made new. Let us insist upon these things, the gospel. Let us swim in this ocean together. Unified in the hope of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite my brother in Christ, Matt Thompson, to come and share how Christ has worked in his life. And then we will enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Father, we come to you today so grateful for these truths upon which we are to insist. The hope of the gospel. The life that we have in you because of Christ. Because of the cross. Because of the empty tomb. Oh Lord, I pray as a church, as a people, that we would insist upon these things and that unity would continue to prevail, the sweet unity of brothers and sisters in Christ, brought together by the work of Jesus, made a people for his own possession. Do that work, continue that work in us. We want that. And Lord, I pray for any who are here today not understanding the gospel. I pray today you will open their eyes to the hope of the of Christ. And I pray for Matt as he comes and shares. Give him clarity of thought. Give him clearness of word. And may we rejoice in the work that you have done in him. In Jesus' name, amen.